Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Something a little bit different today, the following interview with Jeremy Gilbert on the defeats of the Corbyn and Sanders projects in the UK and the United States was initially released as an episode of PTO Extra, which are shorter bonus episodes usually available only to £5 supporters of the show. The interview with Jeremy was extremely popular and seemed particularly worth sharing given the current state of the Labour Party and the defeat and demoralisation of the Labour left. So part one is now being made publicly available here. We talked about why, in Jeremy's view, it was never very realistic to believe that the new left was yet ready or capable of taking power and implementing a radical policy agenda. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London. He's the editor of the journal New Formations, and his most recent book is 21st Century Socialism. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Open Democracy, and many other venues. So earlier today, I was reading an article by James Butler that's just come out in the LRB on the Corbyn project and its defeat and the reasons for that. And obviously, there have been a lot of obituaries of the Corbyn moment, the books by Owen Jones and so on, the What's Left book that um, has been widely reviewed. But in that review, James says that it's an intellectual vice on the left, as he puts it, to think that because the world is best understood in terms of the operation of broad structural forces, uh, personal qualities are less important. I was struck reading that because obviously that seems almost the reverse of, of the argument you're making in the Open Democracy piece, where you are very much focused on those deeper structural forces that caused the defeats of both the Corbyn and Sanders projects. So could you explain what those forces are in your mind and also what, what's your take on, on the line that James takes there? I mean, my initial response to that is, well, what, what produces... What produces personalities in the first place? You know, they don't come out of nowhere. So, and I sort of think that you can clearly say that, yeah, you know, you can you can point to any le- any movement you can point to in history. I think that has had like really effective leadership. I would say has also had various other advantages that have made it possible for that leadership to emerge, and that structural forces, partly structural forces, and partly the sort a certain like maturity usually is what characterises a movement which is, is able to produce sort of apparently world historic, world-changing leaderships. So I think, and I just don't think you can know really, you can't really know. I think in the case of, I think if you look at the example of the Corbyn project, one of the comments that has come out of a lot from those books you mentioned, it's a theme that as I, it sort of runs through both of them as I understand it, and has run through a lot of commentary over the past few years from certain sections of the left, which is that it's really, it's really a story about the tragedy of John McDonnell not quite ever getting the chance to, do, to carry out the historic task he was, he was best fitted for and he was the person best fitted for, which was you know, to really lead a revived left social democratic project you know, against neoliberal hegemony. But part of the reason for that is because McDonald would never have got the nominations. They would the, the PLP had made it clear twice, and they would have made it clear a third time. They were never going to let him get it, and they were never going to let him get it. Partly because on some level he would have been much more of a threat. So there was always some sense in which, well, to a certain extent, Corbyn was allowed to have a run at it to the extent that he wasn't the he didn't pose the kind of threat that a McDonald or a Bernie Sanders would pose. Because his personality was, on the one hand, so congenial to a certain kind of, to, you know, inspiring and evoking a certain kind of personal loyalty and a certain kind of, 
you know, moral mobilisation, but but it was also completely unsuited to the sort of combative, antagonistic politics that theorists and advocates of left populism had been calling for and still are. So, yeah, personalities are significant, but they are symptoms as much as causes. From my point of view, a lot of the things that, you know, I would say the fact that Corbyn was the leader rather than anyone else and some of the problems that went along with that was itself a symptom of the fact that the left wasn't in a strong enough position to push for its its obviously strongest candidate to actually become the leader of the movement. If does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think also I mean I was reading a piece by Will Davies today in Perk and he was talking about the background to the emergence of Corbynism and, and, and the importance of austerity to that moment. And he was talking about the, the particularly moral character of, of Jeremy Corbyn and the way he was perceived in, in that moment. And is there perhaps a sense in which Corbyn's personality is, is seen as, as a problem and, and is seen sometimes as an asset depending upon the particular situation. So in that moment, it's an asset. In some ways, it feels like how he was perceived changed in the 2017 election as well. And yeah, that this is all much more fluid than is actually understood, perhaps. Yeah, well, I think so. It's a classic trope that somebody's greatest strengths can also be their greatest weaknesses. It's the classic trope of tragedy, but it's also just a feature of human existence to some extent. And I think, I mean, what I said about Corbyn in the really, really long sort of post-mortem on the Corbynism movement I did in January for Open Democracy, not just the very long one I did in September, but the really, really long one I did in January. I said then, and I would stand by this, that look, I mean, Corbyn almost uniquely you know, was able to rally the left for the first time in a generation. And he was able to do that in a way which McDonald, for example, might well not have been able to, because he, he might have well have been more divisive. And Corbyn was able to inspire this sense of loyalty and trust and belief from significant sections of the public who had just felt completely alienated from the whole political process since the early days of the New Labour project. And he was able to do that because of his un- uncompromising moralism. So it's absolutely the case and I also just think, I mean, I don't, I would never want anything I'm saying to be taken as any sort of personal criticism of Corbyn, because like my whole, my whole analysis, it would be that look, there was just no way, given how weak the left was after several decades. You know, I say this again and again. You've said, you've heard me say this like dozens of times by now. But I still think, on some scale, I still think a lot of people don't really get the scale of defeat the left suffered in the 80s on a kind of global scale. I mean, the amount, not just because of how bad the defeats of the 80s were, but because of how far things got in the 70s, like up to the early 80s, how far a kind of wave, of, a global wave of radicalism advanced sort of people's political consciousness and various sets of demands and various sets of possibilities. So I, don't, I think people really don't understand a lot of the time still I mean, people know that we had that there was Thatcher and there was the miners, and then there was the end of the Soviet Union, and it's all and the outcomes have all been sort of bad. But it was absolutely colossal defeat. And then following that defeat, the left was just sort of the organised left just sort of bounced along the bottom of kind of political relevance, you know, for decades. And it didn't, you know, there were kind of various upticks of popular protest against neoliberal hegemony and some of its political and geopolitical manifestations. But 2015 really marked the first significant recovery after 30 years of almost complete irrelevance. Now, there was never any realistic possibility that you were going to go from that to the election of a government here or in the United States that would have been the most radical government in the history of that country. I mean, that's just not how things work. It's not how historical change works. And from that perspective, 
The fact that Corbyn was able to rally the left to, on the scale that he was, to, to inject a degree of hope and optimism and just to bring people together and to overcome many of the fractional differences that had persisted since the 1980s was a tremendous achievement. And probably no one else could have done it. And probably no human being on the planet who's ever lived could have done that and also undertaken the sort of antagonistic task of then leading the left, you know, in a successful struggle against its enemies. I mean, probably no one could have done that. Probably no personality could have undertaken that. Probably it just required quite a different set of processes. And I think we'll probably look back in sort of 20 years and say, well, obviously, you know, it took Corbyn to sort of begin a process, but there was no way, it was always going to have been far too great a historic task for, for him or anybody else to be able to complete within a short time scale. So on that sense, yeah, and I think now, the issue of his moralism, of course, was always very frustrating to people like myself, to people who were looking at Bernie Sanders and the way he was able to sort of frame his discourse. You know, the example I always give is watching Jeremy in the debates with Boris and just not ever seeing him, just waiting and waiting for him to make the point that Boris Johnson you know, is basically an aristocrat and obviously can't be expected to share the interests and concerns of ordinary British people. And just waiting and waiting for Jeremy to make the point in debates that look, the reason there's a housing crisis in this country is because Boris's mates have, have got all the houses and just not doing it. I mean, the, I mean, the example I always give that I've, I can't remember now, if this, I don't know if this refers to something that actually happened. I think it's just a hypothetical I, I keep giving to kind of illustrate the principle of what I'm talking about. But the example would be uh, when asked to comment on the housing crisis, Corbyn would never, ever come out and say, look, the reason there's a housing crisis is because greedy bastard developers have taken all the houses and because there's been a, an economic regime put in place which benefits property owners rather than everybody else's expense. His response is rather always just to say, well, look how terrible it is that there are homeless people. Look how terrible that poverty is. It isn't it's a moral outrage. It's something by which we should all be outraged. And to a certain extent, I mean, I would say, to be honest, it was a huge relief for a certain cohort, especially of sort of older Labour supporters and members, people who'd been around in the 80s and had sort of dropped out of politics for decades, it was a huge relief to them. And many of them were very, very inspired and motivated by Jeremy saying that and by that kind of stern moral stance. But I also think, I mean, for myself, and I would say for a lot of other people, and maybe it's just the people I talk to, but I would say probably for quite a lot of other, for younger people, it was quite frustrating from quite early on in the process with Jeremy that he never did come out and make a sort of a political critique of neoliberalism. He made a moral critique of austerity. And I also think that the failure to make that political critique of neoliberalism as opposed to a moral critique of austerity, was just the fundamental reason why we couldn't win back the historic Labour heartlands. Because the historic Labour heartlands had not suffered primarily from austerity, meaning the contraction of government spending after 2010. What they had suffered from was the 40 years of deindustrialization and neoliberalism. And they needed to hear a better story about how Labour was going to put an end to that than was being given to them by the right, which was which was telling them that by doing Brexit, by getting Brexit done, they would put an end to that 40-year history. And so it was really a problem. But I think if you look at the, the reason it's important for us to look at what happened to Bernie is that Bernie didn't make any of those mistakes. You know, Bernie was an absolute genius at producing this rhetoric which was characterised by a sort of popular Marxism. You know, he could very he could give a very convincing speech 
that people with very little education could immediately understand the point he was making. And that the point he, he was making was always a class analysis, a class critique. Yeah, with incredible message discipline. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And it didn't stop. But I would say, well, that didn't stop. In the end, that didn't stop his enemies shutting him down. And to some extent, it probably motivated them to prevent him, you know, ever getting the, even getting as far as the nomination. To an extent, they didn't quite get around to stopping Corbyn getting the leadership of the Labour Party. Just going back to that point you make about Corbyn's failure to advance a, a political critique, it's tricky making criticisms of Corbyn specifically, because obviously Corbyn is embedded within a particular political project. He's surrounded by advisors. There's the leader of the, of the opposition office and so on. Is your sense that it's his responsibility that that critique wasn't made or it's a combination of him and his advisors? Did the advisors not think he was convincing as the person to advance that kind of critique? No. I, well, I think it is a combination. I would say, you know, I've been sort of... I think if you look at Corbyn's speeches and Corbyn's rhetoric going right back to the early days of his career as an MP. He is someone whose who's leftism proceeds from a, a, human, a, moral, a, a humanist moralism. I mean, he just doesn't think intuitively as a Marxist. To be, and that's not a criticism of him. That's just a description. I mean, I would say, well, I know for a fact that some of his advisors and some of his speechwriters very much wanted him to take a more robust kind of antagonistic line. And he just, it just doesn't really come naturally to him as a way of speaking and thinking. So it wasn't, it's not like it's his fault, but it wasn't really consistent with his personality. On the other hand, I also know that a number of his advisors, and I think this probably includes McDonald to some extent, although I don't really know. I think they massively over, they themselves just had a, 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 a sort of flawed analysis of what was going on, of what the meaning of Corbynism actually was. The why had Jeremy Corbyn, of all people, so unexpectedly been catapulted to the leadership of the Labour Party? And their interpretation of it as a historical event was that it was a protest. It was the consequence, the culmination of a protest movement against austerity. And they didn't conceptualise it in the way that I would, which was, well, it was partly that, but that was a relatively local and short-term phenomenon that really what it was it was what it was a protest against was 40 years of neoliberal hegemony and a lot of them just don't think that way the people who were coming out of things like the people's assemblies against austerity the stop the war movement the communist party of britain etc that's just not how they tend to think about things they tend not to have a mode of analysis which thinks in these kind of several decade cycles i mean that that is a sort of that is a typical feature of the gramscian tradition of analysis which is more associated with the sort of left of the soft left and, and the legacies of the new left in Britain. People associated with the much more orthodox left, the Trotskyist and Leninist traditions, they tend not to think in those terms. They tend to think either in, the, in terms of the very, very long-term cycles of change. You know, they tend to think in terms of the history of capitalism as such, or they tend to think in terms of relatively short-term crises. And so they understood Corbynism as a response to the relatively short-term crisis of austerity. That is what I think. That, that is my impression. Not all of them, but the ones who didn't think that way ultimately had less influence on the direction of strategy than the ones who did think that way. And that, in turn, I, and so, that, so to say, well, what's the fault? Who's to blame? I mean, it's obviously, it's no individual's fault, but I do think it was a symptom of a certain intellectual weakness of a, of a certain left tradition, which basically doesn't use any sort of analytical tools that you can't find in Marx, Lenin and Trotsky. And so, and therefore, isn't that great at analysing 
changes in the nature of capitalism on a particular sort of historical scale of sort of 20 to 30 years, which is what I think you should. And I think that is the scale you needed to be looking at in order to really understand like why why Corbynism was happening. So I think they didn't really, I think they didn't really understand what was going on. And they certainly didn't understand what it was that like young people, precarious graduates in London could have in common with post-industrial work, you know, with 50-year-old, 55-year-olds, relatively low-paid or white workers in the post-industrial regions. They thought, or they thought, what those guys could have in common was was a shared interest in ending austerity. And that was just a misconception because those old guys in the post-industrial regions hadn't been having a good enough time before 2010 to even care about austerity that much. And so instead, what they had in common was a much more profound, in some ways, you know, hostility to neoliberalism as such. And you just never, if you think about Corbyn's speeches, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary when you think about it. If you think about Corbyn's rhetoric and speeches and the rhetoric and speeches of the Corbyn movement, we never really heard anything about neoliberalism. We very rarely, it was very occasionally we would hear a critique of the whole legacy of Thatcherism. One of the fundamental problems with it was that you can't make a critique of four decades of British neoliberalism without including New Labour as an object of that critique. Yeah, and that's, that's another, you know, an extra fight with the centre of the Labour Party that they don't want to pick. Well, exactly. They didn't want to have that fight. And the Blairites themselves weren't, were absolutely not... I mean, most of the PLP made quite clear they were not willing to hear sort of criticism of the Blair project. They were not with it and that they would take that as grounds for antagonism. But, you know, again, I think it was always a huge strategic miscalculation to believe, as I'm afraid I do, I can say as a matter of, you know, I, I sort of have, I know this from firsthand, that the Corbyn leadership did radically underestimated the extent to which the Parliamentary Labour Party would be completely irreconcilable to their project from day one. They always thought that there was something they would be able to do that would bring them round, that would modify them, that would, that would show them that it was actually in their own poli- in their political interests to just get on board with a, a Labour Party led by the left and led by Corbynism. And I would say that that was never going to happen. And therefore, it was a strategic, huge strategic mistake to to insist on a kind of rhetoric and a narrative which was partly predicated on not making a criticism of New Labour. And in terms of the hostility of the of the PLP, I mean, clearly the Blairite wing, there's obviously nothing that can be done to bring them on side. And as you've pointed out elsewhere, it makes no sense for a political party to include both Jeremy Corbyn and Wes Streeting or, or whoever. But in terms of the less right wing elements of, of the Labour Party, much of which was still hostile to the Corbynite project, what to you explains their vehemence? Well, I mean, I would say I'm not sure. At the level of the PL, it depends whether you're talking about the Parliamentary Labour Party or yeah, the broader the, the membership and bureaucracy. Well, within the PLP, I'm not that convinced there are that many people who aren't very right-wing in it. If you see what I mean, I, I'm just not convinced, really. There, um, so they, they might claim otherwise at the level of policy, but you don't you don't believe that? Yeah, no, I don't. Well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't. Well, I think there's, well, there's two different... OK, let's think, think about this in several different ways. I mean... Even at the level of policy, to be honest, I don't think there are many, I don't think there are that many current members of the Parliamentary Labour Party who think that, for example, it would ever have been feasible for the Blair and Brown governments to do anything significantly more progressive than they did. If you see what I mean. And I I think most of the MPs who think, there's a, most of the MPs who think that are in the socialist campaign group already. And there's there's a few who aren't. There's a few who you could authentically describe as sort of soft left in the classic tradition of somebody like Robin Cook. But there's not that many, if you see what I mean. And that's part and the reason for that is partly because 
This is a sort of factor that often isn't taken into account enough, I think. You know, the Blairites, especially under the leadership, the organisational leadership of Peter Mandelson, and through the vehicle of the organisation Progress, Progress is the name of the organisation, they had a very long-term project to, to get as much control as possible over as many MP candidate selections as possible. And they only really reached the peak of that project in 2010. It was the 2010 intake PLP was the most right-wing PLP in history. You've got to remember that the, the PLP that was elected in 2005 had insisted that Tony Blair stand down in 2007. You know, they'd had enough of him. And it wasn't because he wasn't good at being a right-wing neocon. It was because they'd had enough, because they'd been promised, they felt that the promise that the new Labour would eventually turn into some kind of even moderately social democratic project was being betrayed. And they, so they insisted on Gordon Brown. But quite a few of those guys stepped down and the people, all the new intake of 2010 was, that was the Chukka Ramunas and the Stella Creases and, and people like that. So the PLP became like the most right wing it's ever been at precisely the moment when the membership started to shift leftwards and the leadership you know, shifted leftwards un under Ed. So the, the PLP of after 2010 is not even the PLP of sort of 2005. It's not the PLP. And I, I have this, I mean, I, I think, you know, I talk about these kinds of things a lot with kind of old, you know, older sort of colleagues and comrades and from the soft left. And I have to say a lot of them are still don't really have their heads around this, in my opinion. They don't understand the extent to which the PLP after 2010 is not is not even the PLP that was in place, like mostly under Blair. Just sort of tolerated Blair's neoliberalism, but was never that happy with it. It's, it includes a much larger number of people who would never have become MPs if they hadn't been completely card-carrying, like robotically trained members of the neoliberal political class. That is a problem, and that is partly an answer to the question. I think on a more sort of metapolitical level, you know, I think there is really a, a division now that doesn't within the sort of late within the Labour Party, within the political class, within the PLP that really that doesn't quite map onto those that, that, those traditional distinctions between you know soft left, hard left, the right, the Blairites, etc. And it's it's just it's, and it's more of a sort of binary division on some level, and it's a binary division between those who really think that the only way you can actually advance any sort of progressive agenda is by persuading, sort of cajoling, occasionally pushing capital and its agencies to behave in a slightly less destructive fashion than they would do, absent any such pressure. In other words, what those people think, they think of responsible, effective, progressive politics as effectively playing the role of the corporate social responsibility of the ruling department, of the ruling class. You know, it's a phrase I used in a little... Keeping capitalism honest. Yeah, Exactly. This is a phrase I used in an essay for the Fabian Society a few years ago. This is what most, your typical Labour MP, that is today, that is the job they think they signed up for. They signed up to be a member of the corporate social responsibility department of the ruling class. And that is a fundamentally different job to that of somebody who thinks they're, they're, who thinks their job, even in a very moderate, unambitious, slowly moving, like wholly reformist and non-revolutionary way, is to somehow contribute to the project of building up popular forces, building up their strength, and actually weakening the power of capital. Not just redirecting that power, but weakening it. And there's a fundamental difference there. And, though, and to the people who, who don't think that's possible, or they don't think it's possible or desirable to actually, to even slightly weaken the power of capital, then those people who even slightly, even a little bit, do want to weaken that power are antagonists. You know, they're enemies. They're, they're a problem. They have a fundamentally different set of objectives. And 
you know, I, and I think there are a handful of MPs in the PLP who are not in the campaign group, but they are clearly identified as being on the soft left. And when the chips are down, they would ultimately see themselves as they would ultimately accept that it is necessary to actually weaken the power of capital to advance any kind of progressive you know, social or environmental agenda. But it's not most of them. Most of them, that's just not the job they signed up for. That is the opposite, really, of the job they signed up for. And, it is, and that is a project, the project which is aiming to is some even a little bit weaken the power of capital, can ultimately only d- detract from their capacity to, as they see it, effectively persuade or, or capital to behave in a more responsible way or to regulate it effectively because you know part of the condition for getting capitalists to accept regulation is you promise them that even though they will be regulated even though even maybe their profits might be reduced at the level of sort of social power they will not suffer any significant reduction at all and that so that is how the right the sort of think about politics that's how the centrists the legacies of the new democrat project the third way the clintons the obamas in the states that is how they think about politics and so there's really there's really a huge difference and at the level of policy sometimes it might seem very very small it might seem like a very small difference at the level of policy but i think there is a real sort of you know i keep wanting to say metaphysical gap i mean it's not quite the right term but there is a real there's just just political there's just a fundamental political gap between those positions and i just think i don't think they are reconcilable now, that's at the level of the sort of professional political class and at the level of the MPs. I don't think that really exists. I would say within the actual Labour Party and indeed within most of the voting public, the, the proportion of people who accept that highly, that very, that view that really the only political agenda that can deliver any kind of reforms is a completely pro-capitalist but slightly progressive one. I think the number of people who accept that position is much, much smaller. And I think it's a tiny minority of Labour Party members. It's a minority of Labour Party voters. I think for the left, the opportunity and the reason not to just become totally fatalistic, the opportunity for us, I think, really lies in, to some extent, trying to drive a wedge between a broader public, most of whom are are quite naive about how cynical and how pessimistic their political leaders really are. And, and would that include quite a lot of the people who voted for Keir Starmer, in your view, within the yeah. Labour Party membership? Yeah, the, the, the vast majority of the people who voted for Starmer. The vast majority of the people who voted for Starmer. I mean, the problem we have from the left is that the, the typical Starmer voter is somebody who voted, who actually voted for Corbyn twice, who voted for Starmer because he put out a viral video about how radical he was. And yet he's also a knight and he looks respectable. and He looks a bit like the kind of person the Daily Mail might not try to destroy. And so why not? You know, why wouldn't you think him? And if they're not on Twitter, these people, they're on Facebook talking to their family. They read The Guardian. They go to Labour Party meetings occasionally. But if they have a very, very right wing MP, they, they, they have no idea that, that how right wing that part of the MP is because the MP is very clever at the way they talk to them. These right wing Labour MPs, they, they know they're not that brilliant, even at their own jobs, frankly, but they know better than to start. <laughs> they're not like quoting Hayek at their own members. <laughs> <laughs> they know better than that. And that's basically what it would take for this typical Labour member I'm kind of drawing a picture of us for here, who probably, even if they do have a degree in the social sciences and politics, they'll have done it at a kind of mainstream British university and therefore will have learned nothing whatsoever in, you know, that would that would train them in the skills of ideology critique. So they don't know when their right-wing Labour MP says, well, of course I believe in extending opportunity to everybody. They absolutely mean... And, and I absolutely don't believe in taking any measures whatsoever that would actually alter the, the social dy- you know, the dynamics of inequality in our society beyond you know, after people are aged you know, 12, basically. So they don't know that. And 
So that and, and they're you know they're very very naive. Most Labour Party members, and I know this from my experience of going around talking to branches. Most Labour Party members, even people with quite high levels of education, even people who voted for Corbyn twice, do not know what the word neoliberalism means. They don't know what it means. And if you talk to them about it, there's, I mean, I've had this experience of sitting there talking to these people and they're sort of, you know, a kind of light comes on in their eyes when you say, right, you know how you sort of had a feeling that Blair wasn't, was never really breaking with Thatcherism in some way, even though he wasn't quite as racist, you know, he, even, though they, even, though they, even though they did give loads of money to schools. Well, that's because they were all consistent with this particular project, which has these particular terms of reference, and that's what we call neoliberalism. But they really don't know. I mean, they really don't, they haven't had any kind of political education, so they really don't know. But it is a real challenge for us. It's a real challenge for us getting to those people, because they're not on Twitter. They're not listening to politics theory other. They will, they will occasionally... Well, they'll read people like me in The Guardian. You know, they'll read people like me in The Guardian sometimes, but they'll read a lot of things in The Guardian. You know, they'll read someone like me and think, and think well, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds sensible. But it, to be honest... And then they'll read Andrew Rawnsley. Then they'll read Andrew Rawnsley. Then they'll read Jonathan Friedland. And, you, and fra- to be honest, you can't make the case in 1,200 words, really. You just can't. The four, you can't make the case in 1200, which really, dem- which really gives people enough of the examples and enough of the information and analysis to enable them to get that when, you know, Jonathan Friedland says, you know, how heartbreaking it is that, he, you know, that, that so many Jewish people you know, feel they don't have a home in the Labour Party. He's not only saying that because he cares about the feelings of, Jew- of Jewish people. You know, he's also saying it because he has a political agenda to delegitimize the left and, and Corbyn. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, he also definitely does care about the feelings of Jewish people. And the thing he describes when he says that is true, but he also he has always had a very clear and transparent agenda to delegitimize make the left in the party. And so, but they don't know that. They don't know that. And they don't really have any basis on which to know it or to recognize it. And so it is quite difficult. And they also, you know, um, I can hear, I, I know that, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that, you know, friends of mine at The Guardian will hear, will hear this and think, you know, and... and there I is, there is at least say, one editor of The Guardian, I know, who, who patronises the show, so that may be... I know, I, I know, I know. And it's very, you know, and they're very good. They, they, they do their best to give us a platform. And also, let's be clear, this is a problem. I'm thinking about how intractable a problem this is because... The guard, they have published long reads by very good people about neoliberalism and why it's bad. But this imaginary Labour voter I'm talking about, they don't read those either. They don't really have time. I mean, I'm thinking on my feet. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I'm going to say this, actually. I've not really thought about it in these terms before, but really, you need two, you need two to 3,000 words to talk to those people, in my experience. And I know this because cause, cause some of them read stuff that people like me write in Open Democracy, and it does have a powerful effect on them. You need, a t- you need two to 3,000 words to really make the case. With The Guardian, you can do a 1,000-word piece or you can do a 5,000-word long read. You, they don't do two to 3,000-word articles. Neither does The New Statesman. Um, sometimes they do, but they'll let, people like, um, they'll let people like John Gray do that or Jonathan Rutherford. I've never seen them let any... I haven't seen them let anyone from the left do it in the past 10, 15 years. But, but that's what you need, really. You need th- that's the sort of length you need to be able to hold... Not to be able to just look too daunting to somebody and to be able... But also to be able to get those points across. And, but also, we probably also... We need left media, which is more explicitly aimed at people who aren't just sort of precarious urban 30-somethings. Or, or some imagined working class, you know, some imagined, you know, zero hours contract warehouse workers in 
in Lee. I mean, we also, we, we need, we, we could really do, it would really be great if we have more left media or at least some left media that was actually aimed at like middle-class, middle-aged Guardian readers. Because frankly, they are the people who elected Starmer. They are the people who will elect the next, they were the people who elected Corbyn actually. And they are the people who will elect the next Labour leader. And they, they are the people who we sort of, we have yet to win over to the understanding that their Labour MPs are not the nice people they think they are. You've been listening to PTO Extra. If you would like to hear part two of this interview and of all other episodes of PTO Extra, as well as extended versions of the regular show, please consider becoming a £5 supporter on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up thanks for listening i'll be back in the new year with an interview with alison phipps on her new book me not you the trouble with mainstream feminism